The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter Five, Corn King. Hey, you remembered the spade? Rick called out to Martin from amid the swirl of people gathered for the meeting. Where's Margaret? asked Rick's wife, Connie. Uh, she's at the town farm still. This is supposed to be her last day of helping them get organized with their food and meal plans. Ah, I was really looking forward to seeing her again. I brought her some of my starter. Connie held out a small cottage cheese container with the lid taped on. She held it out for Martin. Oh, this is great, Connie. She'll be so excited. She's been trying to capture some wild yeast for weeks, little bowls of flour and water all around the house. She's been pretty frustrated that all she's captured so far is mold. With this starter, you've just tidied up our whole house. Always the kid here. Connie dismissed his comment with a small laugh. And I brought two loaves of bread to trade for the shovel. As she handed Martin the two plastic bags, her face lost all humor. Rick and Mac need another shovel. Yeah, he told me why. How are you uh, doing with all that? Martin asked carefully. I try not to think about it. All those people out in the woods with, well, nothing. Connie stared past Martin for a moment. We can't help everyone. We just can't. We took in Mac, but there's no more room. At least we can give him a decent burial, Rick patted his wife on the arm, which elicited a sad smile. I see people are taking their seats, Connie said. Since we're not residents, do we have to sit someplace else? Yeah, I don't think so, Martin replied. I haven't heard of special seating, and I think for the trading part, everyone is welcome. If there's any voting, though, it, that's just for Cheshire residents. Oh, that's good. We'll still sit in the back. Martin took a seat at the end of a row. He glanced at the empty wooden chair beside him. It would have been nice if Margaret could have come, but he understood that she had her final cooking class to deal with. Susan didn't even ask if she could come. No doubt that was part of her new poker face campaign. Hello, everyone, said Landers. I hereby call this meeting to order. He rapped his gavel on the plastic table. Before we get into the usual updates, we're going to let Walter give his news summary. Since he needs to leave early, uh, well, go ahead, Walter. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, good day, everyone. I'm happy to report there haven't been any more shootings along the border for the past few days. The roadblocks have been beefed up. Mass guard units have been told to patrol the border on foot now, after that group was caught in Hadley, Mass., since they were on ATVs, they evaded the usual patrols. Apparently, they had spare fuel and maps for a trip to Ohio. They got caught at the bridge in Hadley. There aren't a lot of bridges over the Connecticut River, so now Governor Baylock has guard units patrolling the border to prevent any more off-road incursions. Baylock echoed the Fed's message that the people in New Hampshire said, "'Defy your crime lords, who are leading you into chaos and starvation.' Rise up against them, and the government will be there with food, security, and peace. This elicited several boos from the audience. Hey, those are his words, not mine, said Walter. Just telling you what they said out there. Anyhow, 
Along those lines, it seems that Baylock has an AM radio station in Boston that's broadcasting messages for southern New Hampshire. What, like uh, Tokyo Rose? An old man said. Yeah, I guess so, except his name is Bob. I don't know if you've heard him or not. I won't tell you the frequency because it's a waste of batteries. Martin recalled Judy's enthusiasm when she found this Bob on the little crank radio. The signal was surprisingly clear, even at the Simmons's house. Everyone gathered around the radio in the living room. Bob's messages were glowing reports of how smoothly the federal and state authorities were addressing the needs of their residents in the cantons. Food was being trucked in from FEMA storage depots, he said. Soup kitchens were opening in new locations so people didn't have to walk more than six blocks to get their daily rations. Aside from the only good news content, what struck Martin was the folksy backwoods accent Bob used. Martin guessed that the accent was supposed to give Bob a one-of-you sound. Instead, Bob sounded like a parody of the old Pepperidge Farm TV commercials, complete with a ayah, and missing internal R's, uh, like folks up north, and extra syllables at internal R's. He's over there. But Bob had a distinct habit of adding R's to words ending in the ah sound, like lore and order, which sounded much more Boston than backwoods. The mixed accent gave Bob a deceptive air. Bob urged his New Hampshire listeners to pressure their local leaders and Governor Vincent to give up their illegal obstructions. Bob worried aloud about the rampant crime that was just sure to descend as starving people got desperate. He sighed with relief that he and his family lived in the well-fed safety of Canton, Boston. I don't know, said someone haltingly. I thought this Bob was making a lot of sense. We just got attacked up here. Things are going bad, just like he said. There were a few heads nodding in agreement. Candace nodded with zeal, as if trying to prime the mood. Bob had found an audience. Ah, now, cautioned Walter, don't go putting too much stock in what that guy says. He's pushing somebody's agenda, and you can sure as heck bet it ain't yours. An old newshound like myself can hear between the lines, and though what he tells you sounds sweet as honey, how many of you have heard him talking about how safe and secure things are in the canton? Several hands went up. Martin was a little surprised at how many people were still tuning in to AM radio. Perhaps there were more Judy types out there than he imagined. Okay, remember him saying he felt safe because they had security squads picking up troublemakers every day? There was a murmur of assent. Well, think about it for a minute. Walter held up a cautioning finger. How safe and peaceful can it be if they're picking up troublemakers every day? More murmuring rippled through the audience. Well, but that's enough about Bob, said Walter. The other news is more interesting. The murmuring stopped abruptly. Uh, word is, they got a couple of refineries working again, even if at drastically reduced rates. I heard of one in southern Indiana that, that they got making diesel fuel drawn on local wells. Indiana's governor wants to earmark future production for agriculture. They've been calculating how much fuel they need to run the farms in that area, yeah, enough to get a harvest. Yeah, they got a long way to go. Drops in a bucket, really. There's certainly none for the consumer market. 
The other one's down in Port Arthur. That one's supposed to be making diesel, too. Same idea, but uh, some heavy fuel oil, like the kind ships burn. Talk is, it's for a relief fleet. You mean bring supplies up here to us? asked Wilder. Yes, sir. The same. Rumors haven't settled yet. Some say it's going to gather in Savannah. Others say Charleston. Senator Culp and his feds are already trash-talking about stopping any supplies bound for New Hampshire. They've been calling it all bootlegging. Yeah, well, that's about all for now, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Walter, said Landers. Now to an important item. You recall last meeting where Don Webster said the town farm was in danger of running out of food. Well, Mrs. Simmons, who is there now helping out, has things in better shape, but the farm still needs more to work with. You're all aware of how we've discovered a source of food in Mr. Gradig's corn. There was a mix of cheerful agreement, but also some sour grumbling. The town doesn't have enough cash to purchase as much corn as the town farm needs, so we on the board of selectmen would like to extend an offer to Mr. Gradig. Landers let the murmuring subside. We would like to offer Mr. Gradig an abatement on his property taxes for the next two years in exchange for the corn for the people at Town Farm. Landers held his arms out as if delivering an invisible gift. The crowd broke into applause at the news. It was a win-win for the town and Clyde. The applause faltered as Clyde didn't stand up to accept the offer, as everyone expected. He sat with his head down. The applause dwindled to a stop. I ain't interested, said Clyde. But, Landers was momentarily lost for words, it's a two-year abatement. Giving me a break on something you ain't collecting is no deal at all. Ain't interested. But uh, the town doesn't have enough cash. Uh, well, no one does, said Landers. Surely there's something else we could offer you. There is something I've been thinking of, said Clyde. I want to be a selectman. There was a stunned silence, followed by a flurry of everyone talking at once. Landers tried to gavel everyone quiet, but no one could hear his gavel for several minutes. Most of the chaos of voices was astounded or outraged or angry. Eventually, people heard Landers's gavel and began to quiet down. Clyde stood, impassively, in front of the selectman's table. "'Quiet! Quiet, everyone! Please, quiet!' shouted Landers. "'Clyde, yeah, that's really beyond what we can do.' "'Oh, I bet you can do it if you really wanted to. You don't want those poor people at the farm to starve to death this winter now, do you?' Landers was speechless again. His abatement offer had morphed into a hostage situation. Uh, but, but, yeah, elections aren't until May. No reason to wait. Call a special meeting, said Clyde. You got a quorum of residents right here. Have them vote on it. He turned to face the crowd. I'm sure all of these people realize how much they need my corn, too. It's gonna be a long and brutal winter, I hear. There ain't no stores to run to. But my corn'll get you all through, so I'm sure you'll all agree with me that Landers can call a special meeting, right? The crowd stared in silence. They were hostages, too. See, 
continued Clyde. Nobody's complaining. They think it's a dang fine idea. Uh, but we've already got three selectmen. Uh, we really can't just kick one of us off the board uh, just like that. Nobody needs to get kicked off the board, Clyde said with theatrical generosity. I'll be a fourth selectman. Always fancied myself in charge of this town. Seems like now's my time. So if we let you be the fourth selectman, you'll give the town farm the corn it needs? Drew Haddock wanted to state it plainly. I will. Not all at once, mind you. I'll deliver what they need for the week. Once a week. I'm not the fool you might think. Clyde grinned. Lander sat, still stunned by the audacity of Clyde's request. The audience shared his silence. Even Candace, who could usually be counted on to be the voice of opposition or platitude, sat with her mouth open. Or, Clyde began, you can let all those poor folks at the farm go hungry in a couple of weeks. In fact, I might not feel like selling any more of my corn to any of you if you're going to be all unfriendly-like. The three selectmen went into a huddle. Haddock's gestures spoke of capitulation. Wilder's gestures spoke of pummeling. Landers played the referee. The three finally broke up the huddle, but none of them looked content with their agreement. Okay, Mr. Grady, Landers stood. We will call your special meeting. We will call for a vote to see if the people of Cheshire want to elect you as their fourth selectman. Keep in mind, cautioned Clyde, I didn't say I'd trade my corn for a vote. I said I want to be a selectman. Just want to be clear. Okay, now call your vote. Landers frowned. Wilder's approach was gaining appeal. Landers took a deep breath. Citizens of Cheshire, I hereby call to order a special meeting with the single agenda item of the election of a fourth selectman. Standing before you is one candidate, Mr. Clyde Gradig. Out of habit, Landers held a long pause for applause. There weren't any. He is running unopposed. Clyde turned to face the crowd with his fists on his hips. Landers cleared his throat and spoke louder. All of those in favor of Mr. Gradig for the new position of fourth selectman, please say aye. Three timid voices uttered soft eyes. Clyde frowned hard at everyone. All those opposed, please say nay, Landers said slowly. Only the occasional creak of a wooden chair interrupted the silence. Then it would appear the eyes have it, said Landers. Mr. Gradig is hereby elected to the post of fourth selectman. Every other election or appointment to a town office was followed with hearty applause. This one was followed by an awkward silence. Landers came around the table to swear in Clyde. After the swearing in, Clyde moved slowly around the selectman's table. He brought with him one of the folding chairs. The other three selectmen shifted their seats over to make room for Clyde at the left side of the table. But Clyde stopped. No, nope, that's not what I had in mind, Clyde said. What? I want the middle, 
I've decided I want to be the chairman of the board of selectmen. What? Wilder stood up as quickly as if he had planned to throttle Clyde. Hey now, none of that stuff. Clyde held his chair between himself and the seething Wilder. I said I want to be chairman. Do you all want your corn or what? Lander's motioned for Wilder to sit down and not make trouble. Wilder was not having an easy time complying with the request. He did, however, sit down very slowly. Clyde put his chair in the middle of the table. He stood for a moment and then put his hand out. It took Landers a few moments to realize that Clyde wanted the gavel. With the gavel in hand, Clyde sat down slowly, as if he were decked out in long robes. He settled into his chair with a satisfied sigh. There now, that wasn't so hard now, was it? All right then, he wrapped the gavel hard on the plastic table. Chairman Clyde Gradig hereby calls this meeting to order. Now I'm gonna run things my way. Uh, run things your way? asked Landers. Uh, what do you mean? I don't think you characters have been running this town right for years, said Clyde. We need some changes around here. Like what? Haddock asked. Now don't rush me, said Clyde. I just got here. But I got me some ideas about things that need doing. For starters, I say that prisoner should have been shot. That was a huge mealy-mouthed mistake letting him cop a plea to lesser charges. He's damn guilty of murdering those good folks and ought to pay. I hereby order that the prisoner be taken out tomorrow at dawn and shot, shot by a firing squad of seven men. The room burst into the chaotic noise of bleachers at a ball game when an umpire made a bad call. It was nearly impossible to pick out specific complaints, although Martin could make out snippets of Candace saying, Those lives wouldn't have been lost, but taking another won't bring them back. And a man nearer Martin saying, You're not the law. The law decided that already. In fact, almost everyone was arguing, at the same time, that the prisoner's fate was already in the hands of the legal system, and it wasn't a selectman's prerogative to interfere with the court. Martin was pleasantly surprised. Landers was right about the will of the people. Clyde hammered away with the gavel, but it was a good five minutes before the roar of the crowd had faded enough to hear. When it was apparent that Landers was trying to talk to Clyde, the crowd settled down. They wanted to hear. Clyde, you can't just, Landers began. That's Chairman Gradick, Clyde said with his arms folded across his chest. Landers rolled his eyes. I saw that, snapped Clyde. You'll all be treating me with the respect I deserve, or I'll just adjourn this meeting with no trading session or nothing. Pat stood up in the middle of the audience. Mr. Chairman, as a member of the Board of Selectmen, you represent the executive branch of this local government. You are not the judicial branch. It is not within your purview or powers to pass sentence on anyone. Several people applauded. All right, fine, snapped Clyde. But I'm telling you, it's a big mistake. That guy should have been shot. Scum like them don't deserve to live. Uh, since how we've settled all of that, Landers tried to sound casual, uh, what would your next item of business be? 
Clyde frowned for a long moment. I don't know if I have one right now, but I'll have a ton of stuff for the next meeting. But now I guess we can start the trading session. He rapped the gavel hard. Everyone get started. The audience rose, but seemed more intent on turning to ask their neighbor if what they had just witnessed really happened than that they were in setting up the trading floor. Clyde and his son set up their baskets of corn ears on the selectman's table. A short line began to form. Many people stood around the periphery of the room instead of getting in line. Martin looked through the crowd to see if he could see the knick-knack lady. She wasn't in the room. He asked Nick and Charles if they had seen her. No one had. "'You guys do have some energetic meetings,' Rick said. "'I was afraid a fight was going to break out,' added Connie. Uh, "'When does the trading part happen?' "'It's supposed to be happening now,' Martin said, "'though it looks like the only thing happening is a line to buy Clyde's corn.' "'I don't want corn,' said Connie. "'I baked extra loaves to trade for meats. Uh, "'Does anyone have meat here?' Yeah, not sure. I guess just ask around. Somebody might. Connie and Rick meandered among the people who were not standing in line. She seemed to be enjoying the social aspect of asking, even if no one brought any meat to trade. Martin did see her trade a loaf of bread for two cans of pears. Martin joined Nick in line to buy corn. The Simmons house already had a fair supply of corn, but Margaret's rule was to buy whatever was available regardless. Geez, began Nick softly. I hope Clyde'll go for trading for some ammo. I only got three dollars, and two of that's in change. We scoured the house for money, and that's all we could find. I'm going to offer him twenty rounds of nine mil to be the missing two dollars. That's uh, ten cents a round, and darn near twenty-two prices. He's got to like that, right? I don't know, Martin shook his head. Clyde doesn't seem like he's in a good mood for haggling. He's pretty firm on dollars only. He might not go for it. Man, he's got to. I only got three bucks, and I and I want to buy the limit. Even five years won't last us a week. Nick turned to Martin. Oh, what if I sell you the twenty rounds? Do you have two more dollars? Nick, I could just loan you the two dollars. You don't have to sell me your... You have extra dollars? A man outside of the line stepped up to Martin. I've got a really nice buck knife. I can sell it to you for five bucks. I really don't need another knife, Martin said. This guy has dollars, another man stepped up behind Knife Man. We got some extra blankets at home, really nice ones. Uh, nobody's died in them or anything. Uh, five bucks each. I don't need more blankets either, Martin said. He did have more money on him more than the five-dollar house limit for purchasing corn. Many people standing around the walls came up to Martin offering odds and ends, trinkets and trash, for just a few dollars. It was obvious to Martin that the supply of paper money in town was drying up. The man with the blankets offered to sell two for five dollars to try and outbid the man next to him. The man behind him offered two bottles of scotch. The bidding began to reach absurd levels. He was afraid someone was going to offer him their teenage daughter soon. Enough, everyone, enough, Martin half shouted. I can't buy all of your things. I don't have that much cash. In truth, he had only brought thirty dollars in fives and ones. At home, he still had more stashed in his secret book, but no one needed to know that. He didn't need another knife, especially not one of unknown merits. He didn't need more blankets, 
Margaret already had more than they needed in the linen closet. He didn't drink scotch. He needed none of the things that people wanted to trade. The men were almost desperate for dollars so that they could buy corn. Martin knew he'd regret getting soft-hearted again. He reminded himself that his dollars had an ephemeral value anyway. If, or perhaps when, people lost faith in dollars, his secret book stash would be worthless. In fact, paper dollars might have already become trivial in Cheshire if it weren't for Clyde, insisting that he would only take dollars. That gave them an artificially high local value. As much as he didn't need any of their things, Martin didn't like seeing Clyde win. He agreed to buy the man's two blankets, the two bottles of scotch, and the man's buck knife. He loaned his neighbor Nick two ones to round out his five. The men joined the corn line with wide smiles on their faces. They would be bringing home food. Others, who didn't get to trade before Martin's money ran out, returned to the periphery with long faces. Martin felt like he had just escaped shark-infested waters. Nick proudly bought his five ears of corn and turned to go with a smile. Martin held out his five-dollar bill. Not to you, Clyde's eyes narrowed. What? I'm not selling to you. Clyde's sons pulled the baskets back off the table and covered them with their arms. You're the one that finagled things so that scum got away with murder. Four of them. That makes you scum, too. In my book, I ain't selling you nothing. Go on, get. Martin was at a loss for words. It was clear there would be no reasoning with Clyde, no talk of the greater good for the community to uphold the rule of law. There was nothing to do except step aside. The people behind him in the line protested, but Clyde stood firm. It was his corn, and he could sell it to whomever he wished, or not. Nick and Charles, Connie and Rick, all came over to console Martin through the embarrassing moment. "'You really didn't need his corn, anyhow,' Nick said. The man who had the buck knife walked up to Martin. Without saying anything, the man gave Martin one of his five ears of corn. He looked Martin in the eye and gave a little nod. Before he could say thank you, the man with the blankets came up to Martin and gave him one of his ears of corn. The look in the eye and the little nod was repeated. "'What do you all think you're doing?' Clyde's tone was angry. "'I said I wasn't going to sell him any!' The man with the scotch gave Martin an ear of corn, as did the man behind him and the man behind him, even though Martin hadn't traded anything with them. A woman gave Martin an ear of corn, too. Martin thanked everyone, but waved off the next man. He held up an armful of ears as visual that he really didn't need any more corn. "'Ah, so that's the way you want to play, eh?' said Clyde. "'Well, then, the price just went up. Two dollars for an ear of corn!' Many people in the crowd shouted protests. Many decided that they'd seen enough, gathering their things and headed for the double doors. Clyde continued to rant about one thing or another, but no one was listening. The people chatted amongst themselves as they left. "'Looks like you did pretty good for this trading session,' said Nick. "'You still ended up with five years of corn, but it's pretty clear you're not going to be on Clyde's Christmas card list. Still, it was pretty neat to see people who didn't even know you pitching in to help. "'Or,' countered Martin, "'just sticking it to Clyde.' Well, that too, Nick laughed. 
Are you going to take the paved road or the back road? Actually, neither just yet, said Martin. There's still something I need to do here. Uh, you go on without me. Say hi to Jess and the kids for me. Hey, Simmons, Landers called out. He waited until he came closer to continue. I saw that lady you were asking about, the sad-looking one. Guess her name is Joni Bain. I saw her over, uh, well, she was there a minute ago. Anyhow, she's around here somewhere. Still wearing that ski sweater. I told her you were looking for her. Interesting little scene up there with the corn, eh? Yeah, I wonder if Clyde will stick to his price increase or if he was just spouting off. Landers leaned closer to whisper. It might be good to steer clear of Clyde for a while. I can't get a good read on him. Uh, too full of left-field surprises. He continued in a normal tone. But it was good to see the town coming together about the law, eh? That was what I had hoped for. There's still a tight rope to be walked, though. Well, well, gotta go. Need to write up this corn deal for the town farm before Clyde changes his mind. Martin secured the goods that he had traded for, with the loaves of bread at the top of the pack. He looked for the knick-knack lady amid the knots of people standing around the parking area. Quite a few conversations seemed especially animated. The boldness of Clyde and his doubling the price of corn were the usual topics. Joni stepped out from behind the row of drive-up mailboxes. I heard you were looking for me, she said, looking down. Oh, hey, hi again. Uh, yes, I was. Martin realized that he usually rehearsed in his mind what he would say when he met someone to discuss business. He hadn't done so this time. For lack of a plan, stammering and fumbling took over. Ideally, this Joni had the tools that made her metal knickknacks. Martin was reluctant to say too much too soon, after the way people mobbed him up in the auditorium, desperate to trade for food. Martin was leery of telling Joni that he had a project on which he needed help. What if she had only ordered knickknacks from China? Martin didn't have the extra resources to pick up a skillless person for the project. He resolved to be guarded in his approach. Uh, yes, I hadn't seen you around at the past couple of trading sessions. I know. What's the point, anyhow? She made Eeyore sound perky. Um, well, anyway, I wanted to ask you about some of the things I saw. I was curious about that turkey made out of a funnel. Martin waited for her to respond, or at least look up, but neither happened. I'd like another look if I could. He could ask about the tools then. It's at home, she said flatly. Oh, that'd be okay. Uh, where is home, by the way? Walden Circle. Really? Well, that's not far. It's actually on my way home. Walden stems off of my road, old stockman. I'm down on the dirt part. We're almost neighbors, uh, sort of. Joni glanced up at Martin. She looked thinner in the face than before, and sadder. Over her shoulder, Martin saw Jen pull up with Jasmine and her trap. She dropped off Jerry at the intersection. Martin waved broadly to catch Jen's eye. When she saw him, he tried to gesture that he wanted a ride home. She nodded. Ah, good news, Martin told Joni. I just scored us a ride. Let's go. Hmm, kind of a twist on the old golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. 
In this case, he who has the food makes the rules. If you haven't been over to my Buy Me a Coffee site in a while, I've been posting chapters, eh, well, many chapters, in a story I've called Harold's Escape, as a perk for my Siege Club members. It's the backstory of a character that'll be in Book 6. I've got some other perks in the works for members, too. Of course, if you don't want to go for a membership, you can always just buy me a coffee. That's appreciated, too. <laughs>